Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities Podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. Usually at this point, Robert walks up, but he's not doing that today. He's in prison. He got caught fishing at the aquarium of the Smokies. Apparently that's not a good idea. None of that is true. <laughs> he's, uh, he's on a break, so pray for him and Michelle to have a great, great, great rest. Because when he comes back, he'll find that we've spent all of the church's money and we'll have a lot of trouble for him to catch up on with, I'm sure. So we're glad that he gets to have a bit of a, bit of a rest. It's my privilege to speak to you this morning and I... I really, you know, I, I do not like speaking very much. Everybody knows that, knows that about me. It's really not my comfort zone. But I do love talking about this that I'm going to speak to you about today because it's so in my wheelhouse as a worship leader and as an artist to speak about the art God and our creator God that we just sang about for, for, for many songs and they were all intentionally chosen to just extrapolate on this theme of our creator God and it's nothing strange or new to Christians. We're creationists. We know that our God created everything. Uh, in Genesis 1 verse 1, it says, I'm just trying to figure out what I'm going to feel more comfortable with because I'm used to hearing myself in my head and then I don't. So I'll just, that's fine. No, I'll, I'll be cool. <laughs> um, in the beginning, God created. And folks, how incredible that the first verb in the Bible, my English teacher always smacked me upside the head because, you know, where's the verb? What's the verb? The most important sentence is, a word in the sentence is the verb. The first verb in the Bible is not God saved, God loved, God forgave. It's God created. First thing that God wanted us to know about him, what he does is God created the heavens and the earth. And you know the rest of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and so forth. And it echoes, it reverberates into the New Testament in Colossians 1.16. For in him, all things were created. Everything, things on the heaven and on the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, we sometimes forget that all things have been created through him and for him. So get this, get all these little things, not just by him, everything was created, but in him and through him and for him. So everything is kind of not outside of God being created, but somehow sort of on the inside of God. Makes sense to us when we know that the universe is smaller than God. And we don't get that because we are so caught up in the little dimensions that we live in. But our God is so massive that somehow in him and through him and not just by him, everything was created. And we know that about our God. We don't understand it and yet we understand it and, and we believe it that, this create, that, that he is this creator God. But let me just take one step back before I speak on, um, because you can see I'm getting, it's going to get all fluffy and he's speaking about creation and all that. And we know that. We just don't know what to do with that really, apart from just saying, yes, thank you, God. You created everything. Not really relevant to our lives. So let me ask you this question. What is the point of Christianity? Do you sometimes stop and wonder and sometimes people would say it's to seek the kingdom of God and you'd be right gold sticker for you but what does that mean it's to follow Jesus great another gold sticker toward what 
It's to go to heaven. No, not a gold sticker. That's a wonderful byproduct. But if it was just to go to heaven, you'd probably already be dead. There are newborn babies and, and, and unborn babies, stillborn babies that also go to heaven. We know that. So the point of you being on, on this earth as a Christian is certainly not to go to heaven. Great that we get to go. Yes, to seek the kingdom of God. Yes, to further the kingdom of God, to, to save those who are lost, to, to, to heal the sick, to bring the broken Luke for All of that surely is the point of Christianity. For my sin to be atoned, for me to live a holy life. Yes, 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 all of that. My folks, we know that that falls far short. It's this. So let's look at one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Surely this guy said to be a Christian Christianity, the point of that is to give your life to save the lost. Jim Elliot gave his life at a very young age to reach an unreached people group. And yet, from his journals, this was the point of Christianity for him. To gaze and glory and give yourself to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. Folks, I think it's the saddest thing if we walk through the door that the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us and we just go, now it's just about laying down my burdens and, and taking up my cross and following Jesus and to what end? And we do not step through that door to know God in his fullness. That is the point of Christianity, isn't it? There's a whole book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. And every Christian who steps into this revelation open their eyes in wonder and go, oh, to know God, just like Jim Elliot, even as he was reaching an unreached people group and laying down his life, he said, God, that's not the point. The point of it all is just knowing you, the pleasure, the joy, the excitement. And so this morning really is not about art or about God, the creator. This morning is really about asking ourselves, are we getting to know God? And are we getting to know him in his fullness? So it's really right for us to say that when we get to know God, we're always saying one thing, and that is let's remember that God does not change. And that helps us in getting to know him because he's right there in the Bible. And we're always saying yesterday, today, and forever, our God will be the same. So it's really great to know God because he doesn't change. It's really terrible when you get to know somebody and a year later, they have just totally changed on you. Right? We all have teenagers. <laughs> you know, this happens. God is not like that. Yesterday, today, and forever, Scripture tells us God never changes. And when we say this, the thing that we re usually are referring to is like we're saying in Exodus 20, God laid down the law and he said, thou shalt, thou shalt, and thou shalt not. And our God is holy and he hates sin. And so just remember when you go to this side and you read these gospels and these sermons and, and messages and letters of Paul about grace, just remember that God did not change. He, he was holy there. He's holy now. He hated sin there and he still hates sin. And all those things are absolutely true. God being holy, righteous, and merciful. And we say, we've got this. We can put our arms around God. We know his nature that did not change. But folks, there's more. If we're going to get to know a God that has never, ever changed, we also have to look at the first verb in the Bible. And we have to ask ourselves, is there a whole side of God, the side that is the greatest artist of all time, that we can get to know in a meaningful, relevant way? And that is the question. Is it okay for us just to know that he created everything that we know and even us? Or is there more for us to discover 
about the greatest of all time? Are we perhaps missing out when we don't get to know God as the greatest artist of all time? What does that mean? Now, I'm a very practical guy. So for us to get to know this art God who He is, I want to go to somewhere very practical. And there's a phenomenal example for you to delve into who this God is and what He looks like. And that's all written also in Exodus, but in Exodus 25 to 31, where God tells through Moses on the mountain, he says, go to my people and have them make a sanctuary for me so I can dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, I wish we had those patterns today. They'd be priceless. Imagine drawings, architectural drawings and things that God actually made himself. I wonder how he did it. Did he etch it himself into stone? Did he just download it into Moses' mind? I don't know, but the point is God gave him exact patterns. Because remember, up to that point, there was no point of reference for anything like this. This people group were living in tents and they were eating by the fire. That's what they knew. And so God says, my friend, I'm going to show you something that I dreamed up. It's a vision of a meeting place between me and my people. You have no clue of this. Nothing like this has ever existed. So let me firstly tell you what your people have to bring. Voluntarily, God said, and I don't have time to dig into this, but it's phenomenal scripture. Because one of the points here is God says, just use what they bring voluntarily. That's also never changed. God only uses what we give to him freely out of our hearts. And so they did. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, which is beautiful and extremely hard, olive oil for the light, which was to be pure and freshly pressed, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the effort and breastpiece. All of these things. And Moses must be standing there. What? I thought your meeting place would be a tent and there's an altar because it's all about the atonement. You're an angry God because of our sins. Meet with us. Forgive our sins. Just lambs being slaughtered and there will be blood. And what more do we need here? God dreams up a lot, lot, lot more. Immediately to Moses with no point of reference. This must have blown his mind. What is God dreaming up here? And here's what he was dreaming up. They had to make a tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant law with an atonement cover, all the other furnishings of the tent, a table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand, all its accessories, the altar of incense, an altar of burnt offering, all its utensils, the basin with his stand, woven garments, sacred garments for Aaron and the priest and the garments for his sons and the anointing oil and fragrant incense. Work, 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 work for perfumers, for laborers, for architects, for builders, for weavers, for seamstresses. Just a ton of art that God dreamed up in this vision of this meeting place. That's what they were supposed to make. And how? Well, in the first place, we've already said God gave them a pattern for everything. But he knew they'd never done it. I just want to show you one little example of how precise God told them to make this. This is just one of the items there. I just pulled out Exodus 25 or one of them, verse 31, just about the lampstand. Now imagine this massive meeting place and here on the table is one lampstand. And look at the intricate detail. God says, make a lampstand, hammer out its basin shaft, make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece 
six branches to extend from the side, three on one side, three on the other, three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches. And on the lampstand, there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. And one bud shall be under the first pair of the branches, and a second bud under the second, and a third under the third. The buds and the branches shall be all of one piece of the lampstand, hammered out of gold. Then make seven lamps, set them up so that they light the space in front of it. Can you see that God can see the atmosphere? It's wick trimmer, and trays are to be made of gold. A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. Make it all exactly like this pattern that I'm showing you. And folks, this, this blows my mind as an artist because God who made the universe and who cannot stand our sin and is busy and should be happy when we're atoned and who's busy with so many important things. He says, no, I'm dreaming up this, this, this lampstand and a little, little cup where the candle would be on, this, this big, God says that's supposed to be, look like an, an almond bud with almond flowers. And the wick trimmer, he dreams up a wick trimmer and what it should look like. Infinite artistic detail. And it's so important to him that he says, make it exactly like I show you. Because I care about this beautiful detail that I dreamed up. I want it to be exactly like that. Are you getting a sense of the nature of how the mind and the artistic vision of the greatest artist of all time works. And how sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we don't think of God in this way. Now, who was to make it? Did God just say, so Moses, I know you've never done it, and you're my guy, you're the holy man, so good luck, take it out there, have the people make it, and at the end, let them just pray, God bless this mess, and it will be fine. I know you got, no, no, no. God also teaches him, and we still have these lessons for all time, how a creative process works. He says, I've chosen Bezalel. I don't know how to say that. This guy. And I filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. What? For what? To go bring the gospel to the, to the nations? No. To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. To cut and set stones. To work in wood and engage in all kinds of crafts. Of all the people in the Bible, I want to be this guy. He just gets it all. There he was, minding his own business, tending his sheep, and suddenly, boom, he's just got all these skills. And he becomes an artistic director in this process. And God says, so, and I also give him an assistant, Oholiab. And I've given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I commanded you. So take a note of this and write through these scriptures. Every time God has described the oil of the incense, he says, and don't worry, it's the work for skilled perfumers. It's the work for skilled weavers, people already skilled and talented in their area. And now they are getting this download from the Spirit of God through Aholiab to make God's pattern. But they were already skilled. So what, what happens here? We see a creative process. The master architect, God, gives detailed plans to Moses, the executive director. And he appoints Bezalel as project manager or as artistic director. And then in Exodus 35, we see God also appointed two other assistants apart from Oholiab. And he gave them a supernatural teaching skills so that they could convey to and employ the engravers, designers, embroiders, in all those fine yarns and weavers, all of them skilled workers, designers, perfume, perfume. <laughs> 
I'm Afrikaans. Perfumers, carpenters, craftsmen, every single artistic thing under the sun. Busy, 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 busy. So God teaches them how to build a creative, productive executive team to make this thing happen according to his design. Isn't that amazing? That God, I don't want to say wastes, it spends the spirit of God and wisdom on the arts. And what is the end result? Because it, you can go read through first, they do the golden calf thing and there's a lot of reconciliation between God and the people and this whole story. And eventually in Exodus, in Exodus 35, you see that they did it all exactly to God's design. And they'd even brought more than what was necessary. At some point, Moses said, stop, stop, stop. No more, we got enough. And the end result is that God filled that place with his glory. The glory of the Lord filled that meeting space. Somehow through all of that with the perfume and the incense and yes, the ark of the Lord and his presence and the altar of atonement and the bread of the, and the table of the leavened bread, through all of that, that whole picture God found it pleasing and he filled it with his presence and his glory, the glory of the Lord, filled that place. And now just, just as I did, you probably in your mind, hopefully you were making a list. What do we learn about the artist, the master architect? What's important to him? And if, if you just look at what I showed you about the lampstand, what do you glean from that about God, about his nature? That what matters to him is creativity, beauty, imagination, incredible attention to detail, excellence, practicality and durability, the acacia wood, the durable leather, the atmosphere, the gleam of those lamps that he saw, the smell of the incense, multidimensional design, not just something flat, not just the screen and a, and a guitar and a this and that, but incredible dimensions, 3D, 4D, whatever you want, and a multi-sensory experience with the smells, with the light, with the texture of the fabric. Symbolism, don't have time to go into it, but on the breastplate of, of Aaron, oh, engraved were all 12 the tribes of Israel. So every time he entered as a high priest, he carried with him, symbolically, all the tribes of Israel. Sacredness, God said this recipe that he gave them for the incense and for the oil of the anointment was not to be used by anybody else for anything else. He wanted that smell to belong just to him. Precision, luxuriousness, texture, richness of color, and probably a long list more. I'm a dude, what do I know? But this is what I got from it. Incredible things that we learn about the nature of God from five short little chapters in the Bible. And then you might say to me, but... Are you trying to tell me something about the nature of God out of five chapters in a Bible that is this thick? Is that good theology? Mm, probably not. But you know what? The rest of Scripture is very interesting when you look at it from an artistic point of view. In fact, most of the Old Testament is poetry. And it got lost to us because of trans literally lost in translation. Everything that is, not, um, that is not narrative prose in the Old Testament is actually written in Hebrew poetry. And we are sure the Psalms, yes, but not just the Psalms, even Job. Twelve minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea. Hosea's life became a living metaphor, you know that. Job, Song of Songs, the Songs of Solomon. What do we make of that? Not much, we don't know what. But there it is, an allegory, an incredible just book of of music and poem right there in scripture. So, so many of these books, Ecclesiastes, as Eddie said last week as well, 
Hebrew poems. And um, I just read an article uh, published in, in 2015 in the Jerusalem Post by Professor Bettendorfer, something weird name. And he just said, remember that in Hebrew they rhymed ideas and not sounds. And so in translation, of course, it was all lost. It never even rhymed in, in, in sound and in syllable and with, with consonants the way we do. Rhymed completely differently. But the point is that a lot of the Bible is and was poetry in its original form. When we go to the New Testament, of course, the first four chapters, five chapters is narrative prose because this is where the gospel of Christ is broken up. That door that we walk through, Jew and Gentile alike. And then Paul starts writing these letters convincing Jews and Romans and Ephesians and other nations um, about the truth of the gospel of Christ, right? So there's no poetry there. But wait a second. Apostle Paul, you poet, 1 Corinthians 13 is a poem. And right through his letters, Paul uses so, so, so much imagery. He says, we are like jars of clay with rich treasure inside of us. He compares Christ and his, uh, and his church to a bride and a bridegroom. And that's the, the flourish, poetic language that Paul used right through these letters in trying to convince, yes, there was a poet in Paul as well. He wrote things like, for instance, he said in Romans 1, he said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that all people are without excuse. So God, in the first chapter, in the first part of his letter to the Romans, he says, you guys are telling me you've never heard of this God, but you've actually seen his face in everything that he's made. Same guy writes to the Ephesians, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, again created in God, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. He might as well have said, according to a specific pattern given to Jesus on a mountain. Still the same God creating artistically. And now he made this in his image. And we are God's handiwork in Christ Jesus. This is Paul writing. So if that's not yet convincing you that through all of Scripture, the greatest artist of all time was writing and he was creating visual artistry and music artistry and poetry, my friend, then you hit Revelations. And now you better get your J.R. Tolkien on. Because there's nothing that Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or anybody else could have come up with like the artistic vision of grandeur and splendor and grossness. That God shows John in Revelation and he says, just hold on to your chair. I'm going to show you a vision of Jesus. I'm going to peel off dimensions to what humans can't see. And I do believe that John was shivering most of the time. Because just look at this. Once I was in the spirit, before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. How can a, a person on a throne look like jewelry? <laughs> A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Try to see this, folks. <laughs> I dare you. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white. They had crowns of gold. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. Again, a multi-sensory experience. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. Can you imagine what they look like? These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. 
And then he goes on through the rest of Revelation before he hits the new Jerusalem. And you, you can go and read it. And it's just creatures with five heads and seven horns and a white horse with blood dripping from the saddle. And on it is a, is a, a, a king with a sword coming out of his mouth. And you just go, it's incredible artistic visionary. Where does God come up with this? Except for in his mind, it is really what's going on. It's not some fantasy. This is real. And then he starts speaking about, and he shows him the new Jerusalem. That city that's waiting for us. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. Like jasper, clear as crystal. Had a great high wall with 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. What do you see? Symbolism. There were three gates on the east. Three on the north, three on the south. So God, again, our architectural drawing there's a pattern wall on the city 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb symbolism the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod the city was laid out like a square i just go on you can go and read it on your own but the angel measured the wall the wall was made of jasper the city of pure gold as pure as glass what is gold that is pure as glass we've never even seen such a thing the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, turquoise, the 11th jacinth, and the 12th amethyst. God built something beautiful and amazing and durable according to an incredible pattern. In fact, when you look at the picture of the new Jerusalem, and you're gonna see what the greatest artists of all time had been building and is creating even as we speak. We don't know if it's finished or not, but you will see creativity, beauty, imagination, detail, excellence, practicality, durability, atmosphere, a multi-dimensional design, a multi-sensory experience, so symbolic, sacred, precise, luxurious. Think of all those precious metals that the foundation is on, a richness of color. The same artist of Exodus clearly at work in building the new Jerusalem right at the end of time. The nature of our God clearly on display for all who are willing to step through the door and see. Isn't that amazing? I think it's absolutely incredible, but maybe that's just because I'm an artist. But I'm also a practical guy and I'm a man. And sometimes I feel, you know what, when you guys start dancing, when is it over? You're just wasting my time. And I kind of wonder, God, you know, China needs to be reached with the gospel. The Middle East is burning up again. America has kind of turned into Sodom and Gomorrah in most places, especially when you watch TV and everything that comes out of Hollywood. Africa still does not have a lot of food. Russia, what on earth are they always doing? So much for us. And then there's us. And then there's COVID and all my struggles and, and brokenness that we've been speaking of for six, seven weeks. There's so many things we pray about and we know all of the matter to our God. So why have I just spent 20 minutes talking about the arts? Why did God in the first verb of the Bible say, just remember I create? Why was it so important that the meeting place be so artistic? Why does he spend the time showing John the new Jerusalem? And he goes, isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? Why? Why spend the time? Why give his spirit and a spirit of wisdom to a guy like Bezalel 
just to create a bunch of art. Why? It's a difficult question, and that's why we don't engage with it a lot, because all of it kind of does seem um, irrelevant, doesn't it? But let me ask you this. If you ask Michelangelo why he took five years and one enormous piece of rock to create the statue of David, if you ask him, why did you do it? And some people did. It's a very simple answer. It was in there, and it wanted to come out. And I didn't do it because I did it. I did it because of who I am. No artist will give you a logical answer as to why they made something the way they made it. They saw a vision, and it just had to come out of them. And in creation, it was not something they did. It was who they were. It's who our God is. With a flower, when you look at it, you go, God, why? When you look at a, a hippopotamus and a gecko and my accent... <laughs> And everything that is weird and wonderful and incredible in the world, you know, God, why? There's a very simple answer, my friends. It's just who he is. And God wants us to know who he is. He wants his face to be revealed in it all. He wants to be known to us as, as in, in everything he is. Not just holy and righteous and merciful and just in everything. Not just the healer and the forgiver, but also an incredible imaginative artist. And there's a lot of humor in a lot of what God has made, isn't there? He wants us to know that side of him as well. His face revealed so that we can see it. Christian Morgenstern, I don't know who he was, but he said, in every, he wrote, in every work of art, the artist himself is present. If you take a moment and you really look and you really smell and you really listen, you're not just going to see the art, you're going to see the artist. Now, I hope that Morgan Stern didn't think he was very original because Paul had already written exactly that to the Romans in a scripture that we read about 10 minutes ago. He said this to the, to the Romans thousands of years ago. He said, guys, if you look at the artistry in nature, you will see the artist clearly. Now all you have to ask is, what's your name? And he will tell you, and I'm here to tell you. In everything that God made, his face is present and in all the artistry that he also conceives today through us his face is present and again the purpose is exactly what it was when he commissioned the building of the tabernacle when it is done according to God's design his glory is revealed we see in Psalm 19 that in all of creation all heavens declare the glory of the risen Lord the Spirit of the Lord is moving, and the glory of the Lord covers the earth. The, the eye of the, of the Lord is roaming through sons and daughters, through people through whom His glory can be revealed. And when is His glory best revealed? When we just don't sin, when we just feed the hungry, or when we know God in all His fullness, no matter how scary and mysterious that would be to us. And folks, this is mysterious. We're trying to get our hands around God so that we can understand Him. And that's why there's libraries full of theology, all just trying to say, this is who God is, so that we can know him. It's scary to us when the God who is at the same time getting the gospel into China also says, and I was on a bike on Hilton Head last week, last week on, and, and I was thinking about the Middle East, and suddenly God, the Holy Spirit just, have you smelled the jasmine? And now we're into the jasmine and the Spanish moss, and we just go, God. And I meet the maker and I see his face in his creation. I go, Lord, how do you do all that at the same time? 
How are you all these different gods in one? But the greatest artist in the universe can, and he is. And you're never going to get it. But because you're not going to get it, don't make like it isn't so. Venture out into this God because his glory is revealed through all this beauty. What I want you to take away from this, you're, I know that the maintenance people are already scared because they think the end of this sermon is I actually want to burn incense in this, in this building next weekend. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I, I don't. People will think I'm scared. And you know, honestly, sometimes when, when I see all these churches doing weird artistic things, I go, what are you guys smoking? It's the good stuff. <laughs> why, why aren't you sharing? Okay, that, that, that's not it. What is the takeaway? Folks, in the first place, we need to understand that the westernized evangelical church, especially us, we gave a lot of the arts away. And when we did, the enemy gained territory. Because what did we just say? What is revealed through the arts? God ordained, spirit-filled, anointed arts. The nature of our God is revealed through it. We gave a lot of the picture of our God away when we gave the arts away. When we said, I'm sorry, this stuff just wastes our time. And you know what? It's actually a hindrance. It gets in the way of our pure worship. You know, it gives glory to people who make beautiful stuff. And let's just get it all out of the way. When we gave that away, the devil said, oh, thank you very much. You're giving me everything that's beautiful. I can own it. I can own visual arts. I can own fine arts. I can, I can own clothing and costuming. I can own th the theater world. I can just own it all. And, and you are all just getting this poor and smaller and smaller of picture of who your God is. And that's who you're passing on to the next generation and the next until they just end up with a small angry picture of God. And all we need to do is just kind of follow Jesus and be saved. And, and we don't see this God anymore because he's revealed through beauty and creativity and imagination and splendor. And texture and richness of color. And he said, see my face in everything that I made. When we gave the arts away, and we did as a church. Symbolism. When we gave symbolism away. When I look at the Greek Orthodox Church. And I see a guy in a weird robe. Walking down an aisle. And he's mumbling something. And he's got this little thing. This little bag. And smoke comes out of it. And he's going through the aisle. Have you seen those guys? I go, whoa. You keep that dude away from me. I'm scared of him. And there's something symbolic in that that I don't understand because I've never been a Greek Orthodox. I'm not either. <laughs> I just like their food a lot. I don't get it, but there's a symbolism there. There's so much symbolism in the Roman Catholic Church. And, and, and some churches through the ages got this. In fact, the, 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 most, the biggest collection of art, the most expensive and priceless art in the world is in the Vatican. They paid a guy for 10 years to lie on his back and paint the ceiling. <laughs> Imagine the indemnity forms he had to sign. Or did he sue them? I don't know. But they did that and they gathered art because they understood the God who is the greatest artist of all time. And they were, they reveled in it. They marveled in it. And when I and very often I myself, remember I used to be a lawyer, so I'm a practical guy. And how often have I said, when I look at that and I say, you know, I'm from Africa, what a waste. You know how we could have probably eradicated hunger from Africa with all of that. And guess who I sound like when I say that? I sound like Judas Iscariot, don't I? And you know what scripture I'm referring to. 
then God probably cares as much about all that art as he cares about the hungry. It's not an either or thing. For me, it's an either or. God, I have to either take that money and do that with it. But God has just got so much and all of it matters to him. So yes, we did give it away. We don't have symbolism anymore, do we? We only have communion and, and baptism and those are sacraments that we can understand. This means that and that means that. But anything we don't understand, we go, oh, no, 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 no. That, that's just a distraction. Get it out the way. And so where's the symbolism gone? See, when we take all of that away and we regard it as a distraction and as a hindrance and as something that just wastes our time, then we put our own worship in a box. And it's a box that we can understand. And it's a very ascetic box. It's a box that says, you know, I actually allow very little because I want my worship to be pure. And I don't want anything to get in the way. And we gave ourselves this super spiritual kind of idea that the more we keep all of these things outside, the purer our worship will be. And when you look at everything that I just showed you from Scripture, it's very clear that you made that box and I made that box. That box is not made by God. And that box makes you extremely poor in your image of God. And the minute you say, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into some very scary territory now because, you see, I decided even what is worship and what is secular. But clearly a flower does not bloom in a secular or a worshipful way. It's not when the flower is down in the night, oh, that's not worship. But fortunately, it's down like this in the day. Oh, my God. Now, it's, you know, we can be so silly about this stuff because we try to understand it all. So, yes, there is a challenge for us to meet and to get to know the greatest artists of all time. We have to open that box and say, God, I'm so sorry that I made you so small that I thought you're either a judge, a judge and a merciful savior or an artist, but surely you can't be both. I mean, I'm not a carpenter or a, a painter and a chartered accountant. That's like there and there, and yet you're both, and I don't get it, but you're God, I don't have to get it. The arts are there for us to know the artist. Very often, why we think it's such a waste of time is we think, well, it's just there for us to express ourselves. Music, to express ourselves in worship. Dance, to express ourselves in, in worship. Visual artistry, you know, all of that. Just thank you. It's nice. Artists, you, you know, go and spend your time on expressing yourself like that if you want. It's just obviously not for everybody. So I don't have to express myself like that. So I can push it all away. And I'm pushing God away because the point of the arts ordained by God, just like his face revealed in nature, is not in the first place for us to express ourselves. That's a byproduct. It's firstly to get to know the artist, to look and to listen and to smell until you actually behold something of God that you never have, to delve deeper into the mystery of him until you understand less, not more, because that's what the greatest artists of, of all time will always do. I don't think you'll understand more, but you will behold more. You will be in wonder of a God who you cannot understand, and yet you know his name and you're welcome in his presence. Isn't that incredible? George Harrison said, art is an insignificant attempt at reproducing what God does every moment. And that is true, except that it's when it's not true, because you see, when, when God gives his spirit to Bezalel, and is the spirit of wisdom, 
and he gives a teaching gift to those other two assistants and he visits with his spirit all these skilled laborers and it's his vision that comes to fruition, then it's the opposite of insignificant. It's a highly significant attempt at reproducing what God is doing because it's actually God himself at work in us and through us. And that's the beauty. I have so, so many times in projects realized that, that God gave a vision and a dream and it's an artistic one. And there's always a point, it's always to, to build his kingdom. And then the marvel sitting there in a team, just like the one we described with Bezalel and whatever that guy's name was, right from Moses through and then the skilled people. And I've often been in teams like that. And then we realize we are creating with God. We're not sitting on the outside. How exciting to get a dream from God, just like the tabernacle and, and a pattern. And say, God, can we please do it exactly the way you want it done? Because if we do, people will see your face and it will be filled with your glory. Because that has never changed because you have never changed. And we want to get to know you. We want to step through that door. If you don't step through the door that the gospel of Christ has given you to know God in all his fullness, then the enemy has taken territory that you should not give away. Father God, how amazing that through with everything that you made, you call us the crown of it all. And you choose you chose us, you chose our species to blow your breath into and to create us in your image so that we can carry your artistry into the world and reveal your glory and your splendor. And I just want to say that I choose to step through the door that the gospel of Christ has opened for me and I want to know you in your fullness as a holy, unchanging God and as the greatest artist of all time. And I want to pray, show us new art forms and help us redeem those arts into the church and help us to take the church into the world and into these art forms. Help us to get out of any box that we may have made that does not allow you to be as massive and mysterious and artistic and creative and imaginative as you want to be in our lives and in our churches. Help us to bring everything back that we've shut out the door, that we've said this is frivolous or irrelevant or wasting our time or a hindrance. Help us to have no hindrances. Help us to be able to see your face and your glory revealed when you look at the art that you have made, especially ourselves and other people. Help us to see your face in the oldest person, in a newborn baby, in other races, in everything in between. Help us to create with you. Give us visions, show us new art forms, any and everything that you want to do, God. Just help us to know you in your fullness. And thank you for sharing your vision and your dream and who you are with us in everything that you have made. We love you and help us to know you and to want to know you more. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org and make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. 